Well, for those of you I haven't yet had a chance to meet, my name is Michael, and I'm the pastor here. And over the next few weeks leading up to Easter, we're going to be in a series on Sunday mornings looking at the life of Peter. And you might remember Peter from the pages of the Gospels, Peter from the beginning of the book of Acts. He was one of Jesus's first disciples. He was called away from being a commercial fisherman in order to follow Jesus. And he learned from Jesus for three years. And then after Jesus died, was raised and ascended to heaven, he went on to establish the church as we know it today. Peter's a colorful character. In some instances, we see Peter demonstrate remarkable faith as he follows Jesus. At other times, though, we see Peter struggle to understand who Jesus is and what he wants Peter to do. In some instances, Peter is fearless as he follows Jesus. In other instances, we see Peter unsure and fearful when it comes to even associating himself with Christ. And as we follow along Peter's life together, we see that he's a work in progress. He is learning what it means to follow Jesus just like you and I. Constantly learning who Jesus is, what it means to follow him with our lives. And sometimes we do this well. In other times, we fail miserably, even embarrassing ourselves like Peter. We're we're looking at Peter over the coming weeks because we can relate to him in many ways. And our hope is that by looking at Peter and how Jesus interacts with him, we'll get a better understanding of what it means to follow Jesus in this world. And hopefully we'll get a clearer picture of how deeply Jesus loves us as we seek to follow him. This morning, we get to see the deep love of Jesus on display. Even while staring down his last 24 hours on this earth, we see that Jesus is still passionate about serving and loving his disciples, and Peter specifically. In fact, one of uh, the uh, well-known pastor that I know called what we're about to read the most supreme act of humility in all of God's word. See what I mean? You follow along. As I read from John chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. It's printed for you in your bulletin. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. Now, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, Jesus said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am so. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Well, this is God's word for us this morning, given to us because God loves us. Let me pray for us before we consider it together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love and for the way that you've come to serve us. And we pray this morning that we would experience that service through your word as it's preached, that you would renew us even now in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this past week, Rachel and I were in Atlanta for a church planning conference. And it was a great week of continued learning and refreshment with other church planners from across the country. And on Thursday night, Rachel and I had the chance to go out on a date by ourselves, which isn't a normal experience for us in our house with three kids. And we went to a great little house, uh, a great little restaurant in Decatur, Georgia. And upon sitting down at our table at this restaurant, the waiter informed us that the city was under a water boil advisory. And so he gave us the pleasant option of having to choose between still bottled water or sparkling bottled water, which we never choose on our own. It's always just give me the tap water, right? Um, But as the night went on, we came to realize that you couldn't ignore this water boil advisory there in the city of Decatur. There were signs as you walked in the front door telling you about it. If you went to the restroom in this restaurant, they had signs warning people not to use the water to wash their hands. In fact, they set up warm water dispensers uh, in in order for you to be able to do that without using uh, the tap water. The water boil advisory basically was the big news in Decatur this past week. And I asked what happened to cause this water boil advisory. And apparently a large water main had broken in the city. And with this break, they were fearful that the water supply had become contaminated by materials that could harm people. Contamination is when something is made impure by polluting or poisoning. And it's hardly a word that's ever used with positive connotations, right? Contamination. It's a word that almost always requires a remedy. When something's contaminated, you work really hard to remove the contamination and to bring purity back. And I want to suggest this morning that it can be helpful to think of sin with this word contamination. Sin is contamination. It's a contaminant. It's something that comes and makes God's pure creation dirty. It makes things unclean. It pollutes the original goodness that God created. Sin brings sickness and harm. And there's not an aspect of our life that's not affected by this contamination. We feel this contamination personally in our own hearts and souls. We experience this contamination in how we relate to others. Sometimes thinking, if they really knew me, if people really knew me, they wouldn't want to be my friend. We experience this contamination in regret when we feel horrible for something that we've said or done to another person. We experience this contamination and how we can blow up at our spouse and our kids with anger that we didn't even know was inside of us. But we find ourselves contaminated by sin just by way of being a part of the human race. We are polluted inside, even experiencing deep shame much of the time, like we're unworthy and dirty. And we also experience this contamination, though, in the world at large. This contamination manifests itself when we experience school shootings or racism or homelessness. 
Injustice, divorce, disease, death itself. The world in which we live in has been contaminated. Everything is affected. There's not an area of life that sin hasn't touched. Everywhere you look, inside and out, we see contamination. Things are not the way they were created to be. Pure and clean. Instead, what we see is pollution and dirtiness inside of our hearts and in the world at large. Something is terribly wrong and it needs to be set right. Sin is like a major biohazard that we've all been exposed to. We've all been contaminated. And the thing that makes this contamination such a big deal is that if you don't clean it, if it doesn't get eradicated from our lives, you will suffer and die. You'll suffer and die. And the problem for us is that we can't clean it ourselves. We can't do this ourselves. The more we try to clean ourselves, the the more polluted we become. It's like trying to clean yourself when you're muddy and you've got muddy hands. You just get more muddy. What we desperately need is someone from outside of ourselves to come and to cleanse us. Someone who hasn't been contaminated to walk into our lives and into this world. Someone who isn't dirty that can remedy this contamination. And in a sense, it's exactly what we see in our passage this morning. In a remarkable act of humility and love and service, Jesus comes and he offers the cleansing that we need. What we read this morning is a physical demonstration of the gospel. Jesus is one who comes from outside this contaminated world, and he has the ability to cleanse the contamination, to bring purity back to this polluted world, to set things right. And it's worth noting that this scene happens, we just read about, happens the night before Jesus goes to the cross. This is the final 24 hours of Christ's life, his last weekend on earth. And what he's focused on to the very end is loving and serving the community he came to establish. For the first 12 chapters of John, Jesus is focused on giving himself to the world. But here we move into the last weekend and for five uninterrupted chapters, Jesus gives himself completely to his disciples. Teaching them, loving them, telling them what's to come, loving them to the end. It's also worth noting that the word love is used six times in the first 12 chapters of the book of John. But here in these five chapters that we see Jesus addressing his disciples, the word love is used like an avalanche. It's used 31 times to express his love for these men that he's come to know in his life. Our passage this morning touches on this theme of love as we see Jesus physically cleansing his disciples. And I want to consider it under three headings this morning. First, we see the cleansing that Jesus brings. Second, we see our resistance to this cleansing. And then finally, we're going to see our call to move out and bring cleansing to others. First, let's spend a few minutes looking at the cleansing that Jesus wants to bring. I wonder if you've ever seen the reality TV show, Undercover Boss. It's a really fun show where the CEO or the president of a powerful company, he leaves the comfort of his or her corner office and he goes undercover. Uh, They take a low-level job within the company to find out how things are really going, to hear what their employees really think. And I've seen an episode where the CEO of 7-Eleven goes and he works at a corner store and he cleans the slushy machine. Uh, I've seen another episode where the COO of Waste Management Trash Company is out there sifting through trash and riding on the back of garbage trucks. 
And it's a fun show because the employees normally have no idea who's working beside them. They've got no idea that the head of their company is there kind of at the ground level doing what they do. And at the end of every show, the big reveal kind of occurs. You know, this is how reality shows work. The big reveal happens where the employees are brought into the executive's office at the very end and they reveal their boss's true identity. And the reactions are always pretty amazing. People can't believe that the boss of their company would come and work alongside them. Most of the time, they're just astonished by the fact that someone with so much power and authority would stoop so low to serve in such humble work. I think that's really the attraction of the show in itself, to see this actually happen. And it's not dissimilar to what we see Jesus doing in this passage. The one who created and controls all things, stepping down into his creation in order to love, setting aside his honor and his glory to take the form of a servant, and to perform the task of a common slave. We see from the very beginning of this passage um, that Jesus wants to do this. It's the beginning of Jesus' last weekend on earth. Jesus knows what's about to happen to him. He's about to move to the cross. And he's talked about it many times with his disciples in the past. And even in the midst of staring down his final day to live, he continues doing what what he's always done. And that's love these people. We see this love demonstrated beginning in verse 4. When Jesus gets up from his seat at dinner, he takes off his outer garments, which is symbolic in many ways of him leaving his robe in heaven to come and be with us here on earth. He takes off his garments, ties a servant's towel around his waist. He pours water into a basin, and he begins to get on his hands and knees to wash his disciples' feet. And it's likely that there was no foot washing servant in this room because remember, they borrowed this room. Jesus wanted to have a last meal with his disciples and they borrowed this room. So there's no servant to wash his disciples' feet in this instance. So Jesus does it. He deliberately gets up from the meal and he begins washing his disciples' feet. Now, as with our kids this morning, washing someone's feet today might not sound like something extraordinary. You know, we tend to have pretty clean feet. It's a little weird, but not that big a deal. But you've got to remember the context in which this passage occurred, this story. This is first century Israel. People did not have New Balance tennis shoes. They were walking around on foot all day long, likely barefoot, or some, if they had footwear, it just covered the bottom of their feet. And one biblical scholar, Andrew Lincoln, it's printed for you at the beginning of your bulletin, explains foot washing in first century Israel. He says this, Most foot washing in the ancient world was a menial task. It involved washing off not just dust and mud, but also the remains of human excrement, which was tipped out of houses into the streets, and animal waste, which was left on country roads and town streets. The task of doing this as an act of hospitality to honor guests was therefore normally assigned to slaves or servants of low status, so much so that foot washing was virtually synonymous with slavery. What makes this account so extraordinary is that there's no parallel in ancient literature for a person of superior status voluntarily washing the feet of someone of inferior status. It's not just an honored teacher who's performing a shameful act, but a divine figure with sovereignty over the cosmos who has taken on the role of a slave. Look, think about that for a minute. Christianity teaches that God takes the form of a slave. 
The only religion where God comes and washes his followers' feet. Jesus doesn't use his authority to be served, but to serve. He uses his authority to demonstrate love time and time again. Think about it. Here we have Jesus washing this ragtag group of disciples' feet. You've got fishermen that he pulled from work. You've got tax collectors that he pulled from the tax booth. You've got someone that's about to betray him and send him to his death. And Jesus is serving them. This is not how we would have written this story. It's not where we would have placed Jesus. It's not the group of followers we would have selected. And this foot washing is a picture. We need to understand that. It's a picture. It's a demonstration meant to show us what Jesus came to do. He came to take the lowest place in order to wash us clean. He's dealing with feet here, but he really comes to wash us spiritually. He comes and takes the form of a servant in order to give us the cleansing that we desperately need. Cleansing from sin, ultimately. From our inner dirtiness. Just as he moves around the table and takes the dirt and the refuse from his disciples' feet onto himself. He comes into our lives, into this world, and he takes our dirt upon himself. He takes our refuse upon himself so that we might be clean and acceptable. So that we might have relationship with him and one another. Jesus came to clean us of the contaminant of sin. And he symbolizes it with water here the night before he actually does it with his blood on the cross to cleanse us from our internal dirtiness. Jesus wants to offer us cleansing, but it's not always that easy because sometimes we oppose this cleansing that Jesus wants to bring to us, which takes us to our second point, our resistance to Christ's cleansing. In our passage, Jesus makes his way around the table and eventually he gets to Peter. And when he gets ready to wash Peter's feet, Classic Peter. Peter's puzzled in verse 6 and is not scared to share with Jesus what he's thinking. He says, Lord, do you wash my feet? And the idea in this instance was too much for Peter to stomach. We can understand this in a way. Think about it. This is his teacher, the one he's followed, his mentor, wanting to wash his feet. And Peter's used to having his feet washed, but he's used to having them washed by slaves, not as teacher, not as rabbi. Peter can't believe what he's seeing, the rabbi washing the student's feet. This doesn't happen. Maybe, maybe the other disciples will let this happen, but, but Peter can't do it. He's too proud to let this happen. Maybe he's even too spiritual to let this happen, this cleansing take place. And when you think about what foot washing looked like, it's understandable. We can, we can understand. It's gross. It's uncomfortable. It's vulnerable. And Peter didn't want it. He resisted this cleansing that Jesus wanted to bring. In verse 8, Peter tells Jesus that he won't allow it. Peter says to him, you shall never wash my feet. But then Jesus turns around to Peter and says that in order to be in relationship with me, you've got to let me cleanse you. You, You've got to let me wash you. In other words, Peter has to confess that he needs Jesus and has to be willing to receive this love, this cleansing from him. And that's often what's most difficult for us. One, to actually believe that we're dirty enough that we need cleansing. But secondly, and maybe more importantly, to allow Jesus to cleanse us. It's uncomfortable. More often than not, we're just like Peter. We want to keep things between Jesus and us professional. You know, he's a colleague of ours. 
allowing Jesus to see the dirty parts of who we are, allowing him into the vulnerability of our lives, our struggles, our doubts, our failures. It's almost too much to think about. It's uncomfortable. We don't like it. It's too much because we're not used to being served. In fact, if you step back and think about it, we're not used to being cleansed or even recognizing our need for it. It hurts our modern sensibilities. To think that we're infringing on someone or we're inconveniencing another person. This isn't something that we're used to. It's something that we resist. We resist because we think we don't need it and that it's too much to ask of Jesus to do this for us. But Jesus tells Peter, if you want to be a part of the community I'm creating, you have to let me do this. You have to let me cleanse you. He's saying that the relationship can't work unless you let me cleanse you. And I wonder where you need cleansing this morning. Where do you need cleansing this morning? If Jesus could cleanse any area of your life this morning, I wonder which area of your life you would choose. Maybe your relationship. Maybe you'd ask Jesus to cleanse a struggle you have with alcohol or food or pornography. Maybe you'd ask Jesus to cleanse you from something that's been done to you. Sexual abuse, emotional abuse. Maybe crippling self-doubt. Maybe destructive anger. Jesus, come and cleanse me. Often, like Peter, though, we try to keep Jesus away from these areas. But unless we let Jesus wash us in our most shameful places, we can have no share with him. We can have no forgiveness. We can have no healing. We need to be reminded that we're not colleagues with Jesus. We're not inconveniencing him. It's what he came to do. This isn't a peer-to-peer relationship. We're the needy ones, the dirty ones, those who are in need of cleansing. And if we want to be a part of the community that Jesus wants to build, and believe me, we want to be a part of that community, then we need to recognize our need for cleansing and embrace the cleansing that he wants to bring. The idea of our neediness reminds me of a story that some of you have likely heard about Henry Nouwen. Henry Nouwen spent two decades teaching at places like Notre Dame and Harvard and Yale. And Henry Nouwen was a man with lots of power and prestige. Many decades spent at some of the most prestigious colleges in our country. And he was also a Catholic priest who gave up his teaching posts at the very end of his life at these prestigious universities to live and to work with mentally handicapped people. He spent the last 10 years of his life living with and serving handicapped adults in an assisted living community in Canada. And Philip Yancey, who's an author and a Christian, actually visited Henry Nouwen one day, and he wrote an article after visiting Nouwen, and he painted a beautiful picture of what neediness and love look like. Yancey wrote this. I once visited Nouwen, sharing lunch with him in his small room. Had a single bed, one bookshelf, and a few pieces of Shaker-style furniture. The walls were unadorned except for a print of a Van Gogh painting and a few religious symbols. A daybreak staff person served us a bowl of Caesar salad and a loaf of bread. No fax machine, no computer, no calendar posted on the wall. In this room, at least, Nowen had found serenity. The church industry seemed very far away. After lunch, we celebrated a special Eucharist for Adam, the young man Nowen looked after. With solemnity, but also a twinkle in his eye, Nowen led the liturgy in honor of Adam's 26th birthday. Unable to talk, walk, or dress himself... Profoundly retarded, Adam gave no sign of comprehension. 
He seemed to recognize at least that his family had come. He drooled throughout the ceremony and grunted loudly a few times. Later, Nowen told me that it took him nearly two hours to prepare Adam each day, bathing and shaving him, brushing his teeth, combing his hair, guiding his hand as he tried to eat breakfast. These simple, repetitive acts had become for him almost like an hour of meditation. I must admit I had a fleeting doubt as to whether this was the best use of a busy priest's time. Could not someone else take over the manual chores? When I cautiously broached the subject with Nowen himself, he informed me that I had completely misinterpreted him. I'm not giving up anything, he insisted. It's I, not Adam, who gets the main benefit from our friendship. He goes on to say, all day Nowen kept circling back to my question, bringing up various ways he'd benefited from this relationship with Adam. It'd been difficult for him at first, he said. Physical touch, affection, and the messiness of caring for an uncoordinated person didn't come easily, but he'd learned to love Adam, truly to love him. And in the process, he learned what it must be like for God to love us. Spiritually uncoordinated, retarded, able to respond with what must seem to God like inarticulate grunts and groans. Look, that's who we are. We're the ones who desperately need God's love and care and service in our lives. And Jesus wants to come and give that to us. He wants to clean us. He wants to serve us. He wants to heal us in our most wounded places. And we've got to embrace our neediness and our dependence. If we want to live, we've got to let Jesus wash us. But it doesn't end here. Once washed, Jesus gives his disciples a call to serve and to love the world. Just as they've been served and loved by him, he pushes them out to serve and to love others. After Jesus washed his disciples' feet, he put on his outer garments and he took his seat again. And he encourages his disciples to follow his example. In verse 15, he says it explicitly. He says, I've given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. In other words, having been served and loved... We're called to serve and to love like Jesus, seeking the low place, becoming the servant of all. If Jesus, our Lord and teacher, does these things, we should expect to as well. That's what he's getting at at the very end of our passage this morning. It's backwards for us to seek a place of honor when Jesus came and he gave his place of honor up. It's backwards for us, his followers, to expect preferential treatment when Jesus received none of it. We're called to follow Jesus in humility, taking the low path. And this isn't an idea that uh, the disciples had of what greatness was going to look like. In fact, if you were to read the the, uh, way Luke recounts this whole Last Supper, they're actually arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the middle of this supper. Who's going to take power and control? Who's going to get the prestige and honor? All the while, Jesus is washing their feet, telling them to follow him. Jesus washing his disciples' feet is arguably the greatest moment besides his moment on the cross. In this moment, Jesus is demonstrating true greatness by serving in love and humility. And as we allow Jesus to serve us, to cleanse us, it's then that we'll be able to move out and to truly serve other people. Jesus calls us pretty clearly to this kind of service in this passage. But he does it, and I want you to get this, only after having cleansed us first. You've got to notice this. It seems simple, but if we get this backwards, we're in real danger. Jesus doesn't tell us that we need to love. uh, He doesn't tell us that we need to earn his love, 
by how we serve and love others. He comes and he freely gives us his love first. He serves and he loves us. And only then does he call us out to serve and to love other people. Once we truly understand and believe what Jesus has done for us, how he's used his authority and power to love and serve us, how could we not move out and love and serve others with our power and our authority? We can't give to others what we haven't received ourselves. And Jesus has given us everything. We can take it out to others. But it's still difficult. And what often makes loving and serving others so difficult is that we actually get to know the other person, right? It's that we actually get to know them personally. The closer you get to someone, the more you see their junk, the harder it gets to serve and love. The more you see the worst of a person, their bad moods and their bad habits and their daily struggles, the easier it is to write them off. The harder it is to serve. But think about this. Jesus knows everything about you. He knows you more intimately than you know yourself. He knows the bad moods. He knows the struggles. He knows uh, the bad habits. And we would expect somebody that knows us like that to turn and run in the opposite direction. But what we see from Jesus is the exact opposite. Instead of turning and running away from us, he turns towards us in service and in love. And it's when we understand and believe this that we'll find the power to love those that we know the best. And not grow cynical about them because Jesus never grows cynical about you. He always loves. He always serves even while knowing. Jesus is the one that we need. The pure one who comes from outside of us in order to cleanse us. He takes off his honor and his glory. He gives up his heavenly prerogatives. He shelves those in a sense. And he puts on a servant's towel. And he does this for you and me. He takes the form of a slave for you and for me so that we might be washed clean. So that we might live and love as those who are deeply loved by him. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord God, we are thankful for the way that you have come to serve us. You did not come as a powerful military man. You did not come demanding respect and honor. Instead, you gave those things up. And you came to serve us so that we might know love, so that we might be cleansed, so that we might be washed new, so that we might move out and give this cleansing and this washing, this good news to others. We pray this morning that you would help us to believe this more deeply and that you would use us in your service. In Christ's name, amen.